Hi, I'm Chinny. I'm Astrid. And welcome to It's a Continent, the podcast that decolonizes history one story at a time. So we're here to challenge the common misconception that Africa is a country and essentially appreciate the identity of each nation. Um, and through each episode, we'll be exploring key historical moments which have shaped the continent. Hello, hello, and welcome back. Welcome back. Gosh, it honestly does not feel like eight weeks have gone past. It feels like we're back again so quickly, but yeah, exciting times. It kind of feels like so much has happened, but yet so little has happened, but you know. Yeah, who would have thought like this time when we were talking, we'd be like, oh no, we'll be back in the studio by now, you know. This thing will be a month <laughs> or so, but... <laughs> You know, such is life and all that. The lie detector said that was a lie. That was the biggest lie ever <laughs> told to ourselves, like, honestly. So, um, a new addition to season two. Um, we thought we'd do an African Pride section where we would highlight current stories from the continent. Um, just to, you know, if you're interested and wanted to find out more about current affairs and everything, we just wanted to highlight a couple of people. So yeah, yeah you're going first. So you have this week's shout out. Yes, so my shout out is to Osuka Raponda, who is the first female prime minister of Gabon. So shout out her. Um, She was appointed the country's first female prime minister. She was promoted from the defence ministry and she takes over from Julian Ngohe Bakale, who was appointed prime minister in January 2019. She's an economist by training who graduated from the Gabonese Institute of Economy and Finance. So, yeah, she's... uh, An impressive woman. Love it. Love it. Always love to see African women win, so... Shout out, Sukara Ponda. Shout out to, yeah, this amazing woman. I feel like at the moment, it's been like powerful black women. I'm talking about Michaela Cole because I just finished. Oh my God. Um, I may destroy you, but. What a series. She it has been representing. I want to be to that level where I'm like, if I create something, I'm directing, producing, I'm starring, <laughs> I'm reviewing. I'm, I'm doing all of the jobs. Do you know what I mean? There's none of this. <laughs> None of this, like, oh, at the bottom, you've just got to write it and there'll be a whole load of white people at the top. No, 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 no. no. I'm doing the shebang. whole thing. I'm re- I am rep- representing in every single element. I bloody yeah. love it. No, it's been it. a great series and definitely it came at the right time, I think. Um, we just needed that drama at this time. Yeah, let's get started with our first episode of season two. Yes, excited. Let's do this. Very excited to kick things off. So um, we're going to cover um, Libya and Colonel Muammar Gaddafi. Um, so yeah, it's it's an interesting topic, Gaddafi. He comes across very multifaceted in that he represents different things to different people. Um, the majority of Libyans viewed him as a dictator who spared no mercy and Western nations believed him to promote terrorism and saw him as a threat. Um, and the late Ronald Reagan uh, referred to him as a mad dog. And there is a documentary in the Storyville series which refers to him as that. It is the BBC, so again, it is going to be quite biased. Um, so yeah, interestingly, many Africans do see Gaddafi as a hero. And admittedly, it has been quite challenging to get an unbiased view of Gaddafi. Because, mm-hmm. like, depending on where you, what news outlet it is, they're like, oh, he's the best thing ever. Or, oh, he's a terrorist. And you're just like... Is there no moderate view of Gaddafi? And I guess there isn't, which is... There isn't. <laughs> it's just... 
<laughs> I guess like this is one of those episodes where you know based on the information we provide you you gotta make your own mind up in terms of where we stand we're no, not exactly. you know gonna be one of it this isn't yeah this isn't one of those it's not a political broadcast people no I, I, I don't insert myself in certain beefs and I will not be <laughs> inserting myself into this one So interestingly, many Africans do see him as a hero and some do actually mention Gaddafi in the same breath as Kwame Nkrumah and Patrice Lumumba. This topic was suggested by a lot of you guys, so yeah, we're really excited to dig in and we're going to examine Gaddafi's motives behind his desire for a pan-African future. So we're actually not going to insert ourselves into that Western beef because we'd be talking for 10 hours. It's a dissertation. Too long, (laughs) yeah, and I don't think I could literally stay awake for that long (laughs) i will not be talking for that long um so we're actually gonna really be looking closely at his involvement on the african continent and kind of his reasons according to various sources why he he did what he did we wanted to broach the topic of sub-saharan africa as we're in libya this week uh, which is just above the sahara in north africa so quite often we hear about sub-saharan africa being referred to as meaning black Africa, and has often been used in a derogatory manner to describe the continent. An interesting way to look at this is when Mark Zuckerberg visited Nigeria in 2016. So many media outlets didn't specify that he was visiting Nigeria, but rather sub-Saharan Africa. And organisations like the UN and the World Bank list countries in different and confusing definitions as to what sub-Saharan Africa looks like. By contrast, the um, African Union barely used this term and referred to regions such as ECOWA, so the Economic Community of West African States, and the East African Community as its building blocks. According to Columbia University anthropologist Brian Larkin, the term Sub-Saharan Africa was widely spread as a replacement for the racially charged phrases Tropical Africa, which were used until the 1950s. Yeah, it's probably still used now, isn't it? When when you get people asking you what the huts are like, isn't that the same thing? Yeah, do you know what I mean? Oh, gosh. And Larkin says that this imaginary dividing line has some origins that stem from racist colonial theories that associated Northern Africa with being more culturally developed. And this is exactly the type of monolithic approach we aim to decolonize in this podcast, as you know. Mm-hmm. And lumping it together, the rest of Africa, and separating it from the North, where Europeans deemed North Africans to be white enough to be considered for their cultural achievements. Yeah. Brian Larkin also goes on to say that Sub-Sahara is too vast to shed light on those traits and can strengthen an often imagined divide between northern Arab countries and the rest of Africa. And Rosalind Morris, an African studies professor at Columbia University, said that sub-Saharan Africa is so big, um, it's such an enormous catchphrase that it's almost useless, as Nigeria doesn't look anything like Kenya, which doesn't look anything like Botswana. Another example of this is South Africa and its liberation. We'll be doing a South Africa episode this season, so yeah, stay tuned for future episodes. Yeah, just plugging ourselves there. (laughs) It's got to be done, it's got to be done. (laughs) So before Black African majority government was restored in 1994 after the fall of apartheid, South Africa wasn't referred to as sub-Saharan Africa, despite it clearly being below the Saharan desert. It was termed the South African subcontinent, 
after the African liberation movement, it was now lumped into the sub-Saharan Africa definition. This is honestly like a geography lesson. Like literally, how were people like, gosh, no wonder everyone's confused. Like not quite sure what to call it. Yeah, South Africa, the southernmost part of the continent is is clearly not below the Sahara. But it just goes to show that sub the term sub-Saharan Africa is just a, it's, it's a loaded phrase. Like it doesn't necessarily mean like, geographically okay you're below the sahara it it was a coded term um and i think it kind of just compounds that whole idea of how africa is just seen as one country like why couldn't you know the report about mark zuckerberg say that he visited nigeria it just was like he went to sub-saharan africa it's like well where (laughs) yeah do you know what i mean is it really difficult to read to say that i'm sorry someone is following mark zuckerberg facebook facebook is following mark zuckerberg He's following himself, mate. <laughs> well, we know that Facebook is fake news anyway, so. <laughs> and here I am True. on Instagram. <laughs> you know, that's besides the point. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it is easier to say sub-Saharan Africa because they're like, oh, yeah, it might be a lie, truth, lie. Let's just make it vague. Yeah, it's. I think it's just laziness as well. I mean, you have definitions of Western Europe, but that is quite obvious, you know, or North America, that's also quite obvious because, you know, you have, you know, uh, Canada and, and the United States because they just then tends to lump everything together because we know that within western europe they're very distinct countries within western europe Mm -hmm. but they don't even have the courtesy and think about also the land mass the size of sub-saharan africa compared to the size of western europe and they don't have the decency to actually say the names of the countries but you know it's cool don't worry so yeah i guess what we're alluding to here with with the discussions about sub-Saharan Africa is just this whole separation of northern and quote sub-Saharan or black Africa however you want to put it but then it's like this whole do those people that are in northern Africa do they actually see themselves as part of the African continent or not and this is something that we're going to look at um, particularly when it comes to um, Gaddafi's pan-Africanism. So first of all, we're going to just look at um, just a little recap or go through Arab colonization in North Africa. So the Comparative Digest series by Nigerian author Chinwezu, um, we put this in the episode show notes. It discusses African historic relations with Arabs and Europeans and looks broadly at slavery and colonialism. He argues that many countries in Africa now consider themselves to be Arab. You see this in countries such as Libya, Egypt, and also to an extent, in some cases, Somalia. Now, this Arabization began with the introduction of Islam, much like Christianity for the Europeans. And again, it just shows it's the same sort of colonizer handbook, mm-hmm. you know, using religion as some kind of as a weapon, essentially. Um, to get you to conform you gotta use it you gotta use it gotta get people you gotta to, use it and be you, you gotta doubt your own faith and be like oh okay maybe maybe i <laughs> maybe i am wrong i'm not quite sure <laughs> maybe, maybe what i've been learning is incorrect let me follow this person over here so yeah classic maybe jesus was white hmm mm. <laughs> they found a way to legitimize slavery and racism. So this is more pronounced in the form of colorism. And the Arab invasion of Egypt started in 640 AD. So, you know, obviously we're not going to go way back then because that's obviously a lot of talking. Um, But it is evident. (laughs) A lot of talking. (laughs) 640 AD. Oh gosh, that would take some time. More than the 10 hours if you were going to cover the whole (laughs) Gaddafi of the West. (laughs) 
nah, nah, not got time to cover six I'm afraid not. till now. <laughs> but it is evident that they've been around for some time. Some Arab oppression still persists in countries such as Sudan and much of Northern Africa. We're going to also just talk about Nasserism briefly because we'll refer back to this later on. And Nasserism is a concept relying on the beliefs of former Egyptian President Gamal Abdel Nasser, who led the Egyptian Revolution of 1952. In his book, The Philosophy of Revolution, he writes... We cannot, under any condition, even if we want to, stand aloof from the terrible and terrifying battle now raging in the heart of that continent between 5 million whites and 200 million Africans. We cannot stand aloof for one important and obvious reason. We ourselves are in Africa. We certainly cannot, under any condition, relinquish our responsibility to help to our utmost in spreading the light of knowledge and civilization to the very depths of the virgin jungles of the continent. So, yeah, it's quite similar... (laughs) Unfamiliar to you. Do you know what I mean? Season like of season two, episode one, I already were bringing light, (laughs) and we've used the word jungle and tropical. same sort of frame of references isn't it it's like you know in english lit where you're like oh that's a theme like it's just oh that's oh gosh that is true like, how many times <laughs> do they mention the jungle in light why is the jungle in darkness um it's very similar actually um to what the europeans were saying and again it's almost like he's like oh we are in that continent we're in africa but like are, are you seeing yourself as an african it's 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 very interesting yeah it's very i get that in the sense that like he himself says you know we ourselves are in africa but then (laughs) the bloke is like literally putting his arm away be like but we still need to like you know civilize the rest of that jungle bit i don't really know what's going on but it looks like a bit of civilization is needed you know civilization calling like what an yeah. it's it's the same thing isn't it really um and it's like mm-hmm. are, are they wanting to be closer are they wanting to allude to be closer to the west are they trying to build trade links with the west and sort of separate themselves like it's just it's interesting to see how how he described um the continent itself and it's interesting to know and it is picked up in the book uh african immigrants in south africa that nasa didn't say we are also Africans, or words to that degree. He also said that continent, which almost kind of distances yourself, um, suggesting that Arab North Africa is not part of that continent, and that the Black African continent, commonly referred to as Sub-Saharan Africa today. Mm-hmm. So NASA also suggests, again, here, that Black Africa was uncivilized, same old themes, and needed guidance and the light of knowledge and civilizations from Arabs in North Africa. So when you consider that Gaddafi was a Nasserist, um, so Nasser was his was a huge inspiration of his. It's interesting to see how his actions and words kind of translated to this, and and you know if we think what we think his motives of Pan Africanism were. Yeah, and it's just like we really need to think about you know the words that you use and the words that he was using, how that comes across. You know, a bit of like you know self hate. I mean, we've got to love love ourselves, love the continent we're from, just appreciate all of it. Gaddafi was described as graceful and charming by his allies and dominated Libya's politics for four decades and was the subject of a pervasive cult of personality. The West forgave Gaddafi for a few initial atrocities and human rights abuses because of oil, obviously. Uh, obviously. <laughs> and Operation Where's the Oil Where in is full it? effect right here. Do you know what I mean? You're willing to forgive atrocities and human rights. You know, oil, it's fine. You know, basically, yin and yang, I mean, isn't it? like, whatever it takes. We will do whatever it takes, in the words of Rishi Sudak. <laughs> <laughs> 
to secure that oil. Oh, gosh. Gaddafi was truly living the despot lifestyle with a cruise liner and shark pulled in tow. He also had a tent flown ahead of him with an excessive entourage when flying to international engagements. He also had female bodyguards protecting him at all costs and were prepared to die for him. And they dressed in all black and were known to be, you know, beautiful. So yeah, that's quite an interesting aesthetic to have. Do you know what I mean? I'm all for women, <laughs> like, you know, women empowerment, taking, being in the spaces where you normally see men. But at the same time, this guy has committed human rights abuses and picking beautiful women i'm sorry like yeah but think about how that would have looked on instagram that's probably what he was doing it for (laughs) in his mind he was preparing for the gram (laughs) (laughs) however gaddafi obviously had several skeletons in his closet with allegations of sexual abuse towards schoolgirls and many other human rights abuses gaddafi gradually became obsessed with power and money Another thing that stands out about him is his desire for a United States of Africa and his pan-Africanism. His rule saw him go from revolutionary hero to international pariah, to the West's valued strategic partner and back to pariah again. But again, for the purposes of this episode, we're just going to focus on his pan-Africanism. But also interesting to know how, like, you know, the West can literally, like, pick you up, dump you, pick you up, dump you. It's like honestly being like in a really bad online relationship. Oh yeah, on again, off again, you know. So if you've got oil, yeah, yeah I'm coming round. Oh yeah, yeah. I've got oil on my way. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> Imagine. <laughs> Gosh, if it was only that easy to find men on. I've got oil. On my way. Yeah, I've got oil. So <laughs> oil is the new yeah. you up. <laughs> yeah. Just pictures of my barrels. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Oh, well. Now we're just going to cover Gaddafi's rise to power. And um, in September 1969, Gaddafi became the de facto leader of Libya after overthrowing King Idris in what was known as a bloodless coup. Significant oil reserves were discovered in 1959, enabling the Kingdom of Libya to transition from one of the poorest nations into an incredibly wealthy state. However, resentment was building in the population as the nation's wealth was increasingly concentrated in the hands of King Idris. This, coupled with the rise of Nasserism and Arab nationalism, increased discontent amongst Libyans and the Arab world. After the coup, it became evident that Gaddafi was dedicated to Arab unity and supported the Palestinian cause against Israel. He was the chairman of the Libyan Revolutionary Command Council, the RCC, which ruled what was known as the Libyan Arab Republic from 1969 to 1977. Gaddafi had the most influence in this body. The RCC reaffirmed Libya's dedication to Arab unity, and Libya's state religion was Islam. All parliamentary institutions from the former Kingdom of Libya were dissolved with all legislative functions and carried out by the RCC. The RCC also continued the prohibition against all political parties. So, yeah, that kind of should be a red slash amber flag, maybe? Like, Mm -hmm. not allowed to have other parties. Hmm. Warning! Warning! (laughs) Klaxon! (laughs) (laughs) One interesting thing to note on the RCC is that it proclaimed neutrality in the ongoing Cold War confrontation between the global superpowers at the time, I'm going to say, because US is, sorry, you guys are not superpowers anymore. (laughs) The USA and the USSR, um, yet clearly opposed all forms of colonialism and imperialism, which I'm like, okay, yeah, I like that part, but not the other part. 
In these early days, Gaddafi set out tackling the unfair economic legacy of foreign domination. Significant oil reserves had been discovered in Libya in the late 50s. However, the extraction was controlled by foreign petroleum companies, setting prices to the advantage of their consumers and benefiting from a half share in revenue. Gaddafi demanded renegotiation of these contracts and threatened to shut off production if these oil companies refused to comply. In his words to these oil executives, people who have lived without oil for 5,000 years can live without it again for a few years in order to attain their legitimate rights. This brazen strategy was a success and Libya became the first quote developing country to secure a majority share of revenues from their own oil production and money from Libyan oil was deposited into the bank accounts of every citizen. So imagine like your country actually sharing wealth with you. That must be nice. I know. Imagine like, oh, that's a bit of oil from our, and we'll just, you know. Spit me. That we've got yes. on the land. Yeah, I'll have a bit of that. Use that on my ASOS order. <laughs> I was thinking more house deposit, hun, but you know, whatever floats uh, you Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, to be honest, no, that's what I should be thinking, but... This is where it go wrong. This is why millennials are not owning homes. This is clearly the problem. I know. I'm buying avocados and <laughs> buying clothes. During Gaddafi's reign, the price of petrol in Libya was now as low as 14 cents per litre. That is unreal. Like, I don't drive frequently, but 14 cents per litre is insanely cheap. That is Like, nuts. I would buy a car now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Other nations followed suit, and this began the 1970s Arab petro boom. And as a result of this, Libya became a prosperous nation. It had one of the smallest populations in Africa, less than 3 million at the time. But oil made Libya very rich very quickly. In fact, between 1967 to 1983, Libya had a higher GDP per capita than the US. And between 1964 to 1986, a higher GDP per capita than the EU. So, damn. It's just so impressive that he was able to negotiate with the rest, the, with the West's kryptonite, obviously oil. But you know, the West would bend over backwards for it. Mm-hmm. So, which is really good. Like, I think realize, like, do you know what? These are our resources that I have. Yeah. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, I'm in a position yeah. of strength rather than just be like, I'll just take whatever you're gonna give to me, mate. Yeah. It's a valuable resource. You gotta, you know. It's like you will pay for my resources. The book Africanism mentions how the author had several conversations with people who lived in Tripoli before 2011. Any Libyan who wanted to become a farmer was given free use of land and house farm equipment as well as livestock and seeds. All people had access to hospitals, clinics and medicines free of charge. Imagine if I was to get a whole like farm, livestock and seeds, I will learn how to oh, become babe, a farmer. Oh babe, no problem. No, I'm growing my own avocados. I am out here milking cows <laughs> doing doing the most for free i'll youtube how to become a farmer i'm sure <laughs> yeah, that's something I'm sure <laughs> i'll join a facebook group <laughs> yeah i'm sure that's something that's if in doubt if a libya needed surgery that was unavailable in libya funding was provided for overseas treatment now that is a madness. Wow. These policies raised life expectancy in Libya from 44 to 75 years, and the literacy rate increased from 20 to 85%. So, yeah, he was on job here. Basic food items were subsidised, and electricity was widely available in the country. There was no electricity bill in Libya. Irrigation projects were also set up in order to support a drive towards agriculture development and self-sufficiency. So, if you remember, you know, when we talked about Thomas Sankara um, 
in season one about how he said he who feeds you clothes you yeah and like it's just important to be able to get to a level of self-sufficiency because that's when you can really make progress but then it's that point isn't it where it's starting off well yeah and then this is when i start getting that anxiety (laughs) like i'm getting a bit of like oh oh my gosh it's about to go bad what is he gonna do wrong they just get so I don't even know, obsessed with doing good, that they're like, oh, do you know what? This goodness thing is just a bit... Yeah, what, that money's really hitting. (laughs) I'm just giving it away (laughs) at the moment. I'm letting people learn how to read, but what am I getting back for myself? (laughs) Nothing, nothing. (laughs) Good intentions, but you just get lost in the source. It's It's a shame. The Green Book was a book Gaddafi wrote in the early 70s on his political philosophy, which was a theory behind many of these reforms and policies he put in place. So one example is that he wrote, The house has a basic need for both the individual and the family, therefore it should not be owned by others. And uh, he vowed that his parents would not get house until everyone in Libya had a home. So again, it must be nice. Um, yeah. At the same, like, good on him, but at the same time, I'm sorry, but my parents will, should have home but i think he was trying to make a point (laughs) (laughs) all right all right maybe maybe he wasn't (laughs) his parents just out on the streets like (laughs) please give all of these people homes so you can give us one okay yeah yeah, maybe that was i took it too literally (laughs) the theories in the green book set out to solve contradictions that we see in capitalism and communism which are regarded as a first and second policy in order to set the world on a new model of political, economic and social revolution and liberate the oppressed. Unfortunately, there is some irony in this text as its primary objective was to break away from dominated political systems, but actually this text was ended up being used to subjugate an entire population. So I kind of get what he was doing, trying to chart quite similar to Thomas Sankara in that he wanted to chart a third way, but those sort of things kind of work in theory. But when you actually tried to apply it it turns out it kind of goes wrong wrong yeah what we find with um as other leaders like thomas sankar and even to an extent robert mugabe is that there was an absolute intolerance of dissenting voices or other points of view and this led out to the hollowing out of libyan society authority with political participation completely gone According to the Green Book, Gaddafi's third-way solution was not through parliamentary systems or elections. Gaddafi referred to this concept as a dictatorship by the majority party, saying that the political struggle that results in the victory of a candidate with, for example, 51% of the votes, leads to a dictatorial governing body in the guise of a false democracy, since 49% of the electorate is ruled by an instrument of government they did not vote for, but it has been imposed upon them. Such is dictatorship. And I mean, I hate to bring the B word up, but you know. Is it? I don't think it's still a thing, to be honest. I don't know. No, he, he still <laughs> wants to leave despite the C word. But, uh gosh. The new system was shown in the Green Book with basic popular congresses electing people's committees, which then influence a responsive democratic people's general secretariat in the middle. This idea was called Jamaharia and was influenced by Nasser's Arab nationalism and Soviet communism. Um, and was a play on the Arabic word for republic. Um, But it is a case of expectation versus reality. What actually ended up happening was a hierarchical pyramid with the Gaddafi family and allies at the top with all the power. So he still, ironically, end up with a dictatorship. Always a classic dictatorship. 
love a despot. The Libyan population were intimidated into attending popular congresses that actually had no power, authority or budgets, knowing that if you spoke out of turn or criticised the regime, you would be put away. And Ali Ajali, Gaddafi's former ambassador to the United States, claimed in the documentary Gaddafi the Mad Dog that a young man who was tied to two cars and ripped in half after complaining that Gaddafi had slept with his wife. So we've been out here saying, you know, entanglements, but you literally do not want to be messing with Gaddafi because, yeah, you do not mess with this guy. Draconian laws were set up in the name of upholding security, which deviated from Gaddafi's claim that he was to liberate the oppressed. Gaddafi banned political parties, so, you know, we're getting back to feeling <laughs> territory here, and <laughs> began arresting their leaders in 1973, with, yeah, their leaders being sent to jail. Stories were told of how large dogs were trained to bite and cause maximum pain to prisoners. Those in prisons were also brainwashed with Gaddafi's speeches throughout the day. Collective punishment and death was the penalty for spreading theories aiming to change the Libyan constitution, and life imprisonment was the punishment for spreading information that tarnished the country's reputation. So, yeah, at least, you know... You're able to read and you're yeah, fully your aware. Yeah, literacy rate is up, in it? So, <laughs> yeah. What else? He's creating, it's that balance, isn't it? I've given you the ability to read and own your own farm. <laughs> but if you say anything against me, I will rip you in half. Oh. So, <laughs> Stab. <laughs> gosh, honestly, this how, how do, how was, did, was he able to justify this in his own mind? It's crazy. From April 1976, Gaddafi allowed his revolutionary committees to persecute university students suspected of opposing his regime. Anti-Gaddafi students were holding peaceful demonstrations in major Libyan cities when student Gaddafi supporters led a violent attack against the demonstrators at universities in Tripoli and Benghazi. These demonstrations were held to express students' concern with the regime, human rights abuses and the control exerted by the military over all aspects of life in Libya. In response, Gaddafi and his supporters raided educational institutions in order to silence and eliminate the protesters. Many students were detained for months and later released only to be re-arrested at Gaddafi's orders as he wanted them imprisoned for life or executed. On April 7th, 1977, the first anniversary of these events, several students like Omar Dabob and Mohammed bin Saud were hung in a public square in Benghazi. Students were hung every April in a sick and twisted remembrance. Footage of these hangings show how the crowd cheered and clapped, and in some cases, these killings followed years of imprisonment without trial. This is just, I can't even put into words how awful this is, that it just became an event for people, like completely dehumanising them and doing it so publicly without even giving them a fair... um... No right to a fair trial. Yeah. It's the thing, like any sort of dissenting voice was just, these types of leaders just cannot cope with any form of criticism whatsoever to have to go to these lengths and then publicly humiliate, murder those people to put people off doing it. But what strikes me is, and when you know that a regime is really, you know go in the in the wrong direction is that you still get those dissenting voices regardless like mm-hmm. they see what's happening but they're not put off by that they still carry on criticizing the government it's just crazy it also became widely reported that Gaddafi visited schools in Libya to find teenage girls to abuse he would pat girls on the head and this would indicate to his henchmen to pick them up after school 
Students were abused and abortions were given. They were also sent to mental institutions to discredit and gaslight the victims. So this was another side to Gaddafi. Yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, it's quite shocking because I... Honestly, I, I didn't really realise. I still sort of had that vague, oh, but he wanted to help Africa, not knowing what he was doing to his own people, you know. So it's it was quite shocking to discover this. As Gaddafi wasn't put under any restraints of his government, he took his anti-imperialist campaign around the world by funding and supporting militant groups and resistance movements where he could. Gaddafi formed alliances with anti-imperialist movements, most notably the IRA, the Irish Republican Army. This is another problem with like the UK education system specifically because obviously we know that like there's beef with the IRA, right? But we don't actually know why. Like, you think that these people are just bombing for bands, but clearly that there's a situation and, um, yeah. you know, the troubles were not that long ago. And, you know, even our IRA bombings would happen quite frequently, even as a child, actually, just seeing it in the news. So, yeah, why we don't actually, I'm ashamed to say, have much knowledge about this, you know, it's quite shocking. And it just goes to show that the UK education system has a habit of covering up. Do you know what I mean? Especially if it's something quite local. Yeah, this is literally across the sea. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, oh, sorry, why are they doing this? During the 1960s, the provisional RIA was badly armed and they were still relying on old weapons, some of which dated back to the Second World War. Gaddafi saw the IRA as a comrade in arms fighting against British imperialism. He was partially responsible for providing them with updated weapons and quite often bomb ingredients that were found to have originated from Libya. In 1973, the Irish Navy boarded a ship called the Claudia off the Irish coast, finding five tonnes of weapons supplied by Libya. Semtex from Libya was also found to be involved in the Enniskillen bomb in 1987, the Bali bus bombing in 1988 and about 250 other booby trap bombings. Gaddafi also formed a friendship with Ugandan despot Idi Amin, who declared himself as a self-appointed conqueror of the British Empire. Yeah, we have actually heard a wee requests about Idi Amin, but like, we will get there eventually. We know that Amin ordered a number of extrajudicial killings, and he and Gaddafi obviously had a shared common ground on this. Um, and also Gaddafi sent 2,500 Libyan troops along with arms to back Amin from an invasion by Ugandan dissidents supported by Tanzanians. So, you know, despots helping each other, some kinship. Um, also, Frank Teffil, who was a former CIA agent, and he was a fugitive in Cuba until his death, which, according to Wikipedia, which I guess is not the most reliable source, some say was faked, worked with Gaddafi and sold Amin torture equipment on his behalf. So when Idi Amin was overthrown in April 1979, he fled to Libya and um, Gaddafi awaited him and Amin lived in exile in Libya for some time. So by this point, Gaddafi was less of the brother leader figure of Libya and more avenging against the US and Europe and the Western world. And this is the thing, like, I am here for this whole avenging the West <laughs> peace. <laughs> I want to just sort of cherry pick. I'm here for this bit, but none of that other stuff. Yeah, I'm not really here for extrajudicial killings. Like, that's just not... That's not really where I stand. Let's turn back into, yeah, turn back to Africa. So initially, Gaddafi wanted to liberate the Arab world, but was snubbed by Arab leaders. And by 1973, he was growing increasingly impatient with his Arab allies. His main complaint being that Syria and Egypt, Libya's partners in the Federation of Arab Republics, were not heeding his plea for a collective pan-Arab strategy against Israel. Susie Kaysa, a close friend of Gaddafi, said that many of his policies were utopic and his ideas for the region did not 
not happen. He wanted to be king of somewhere else. Africa. You know? There it is. Maybe that's yeah. where I can rule. Um, even though I'm I there. I want to be you know? a mighty king. <laughs> Everybody look right. <laughs> oh, gosh. So, Gaddafi as king of Africa. When the Arabs turned their backs on Gaddafi, he turned to Africa radiating power and money and buying off heads of state. There was a sense that he was a revolutionary promoting African unity. What were his motives? Was Libya using money from oil exports to pour aid and investment to increase political clout on the continent? The West had essentially pillaged Africa's resources and this was the rhetoric Gaddafi told the continent. He supported Nelson Mandela's struggle as Libya provided funding and support to South African anti-apartheid movements and gave military training to the ANC, the African National Congress, the ruling party of South Africa post-apartheid. After the ANC was legislated, Nelson Mandela, who was leader at the time, visited Gaddafi in Libya in May 1990 to thank him for his support and assistance. This kinship irritated the West, and at this point, Gaddafi was a pariah due to his connections with the Pan Am bombing over Lockerbie in 1988. Nelson Mandela is quoted to have said that, how can the West have the arrogance to dictate to us who our friends should be? Why Gosh, but to be honest, at this point, he should have learned, like, the West, they don't, they don't care. They want to tell you what to do regardless, you know what I mean? I'm just going to stick my head in. Gaddafi continued to bankroll projects across countries, building Africa's largest mosque on the land Idi Amin gave him. Many young Muslims in the region regarded Gaddafi as a revolutionary, seeing him as a way to get out of suffering and misery. This seemed convincing as he kept promising to make Africans rich. In 2010, Gaddafi said that he was offering to invest 97 billion US dollars in Africa to free it from Western influence. That is a lot. Do you know what I mean? That is not like... That's just hanging around, is it? Literally, give me no point something of that and happy days. Some of his ideas included contributing 100 million euros for the construction of a trans-Sahara highway in the north of Niger, building schools and hospitals in Mauritania, and supporting the Gambian agriculture sector through tractor donations. A year earlier, in 2009, Gaddafi pronounced himself as King of Kings of Africa and brought local chiefs to testify on his behalf of his grandness at the 12th African Union Summit in Addis Ababa. Imagine that! (laughs) Please testify to the fact that I am just amazing. Um, okay. King of Kings? Like, who does this man think he is? (laughs) A public ceremony was held in Libya in the presence of over 200 African traditional leaders. Is he the Arab saviour Africa has been looking for? Because yeah, the white saviours are gone, they're out there, mm-mm, we're not... Not everyday white saviour, sometimes Arab, you know. Arab saviours, <laughs> do you know what I mean? We've got to give everybody a chance to save the continents. And now you've got the Chinese being the Asian saviours, so... Yeah, (laughs) gosh, modern day saviors for us. Here's a bit where it gets quite interesting because we're like, so what did Gaddafi really think about Africans? And again, what was his motivation? Like, did he just want to increase clout? Did he just want to massage his ego? What was going on? Things started to get quite contradictory and Nuri al-Mismari, the former chief of protocol, um, said in an interview that Gaddafi said, bring me that black slave in reference to a president of an African state preparing to visit. Al-Mismari alleges that Gaddafi in fact despised Africans and described them as idiots. 
claiming that they were easy to bribe and intimidate. Also, this benevolent benefactor, Arab saviour image was at odds with Gaddafi funding and backing brutal regimes. So we heard how um, Gaddafi supported Idi Amin in Uganda to the point where he offered Amin refuge after he was overthrown. And another unsettling case is Sierra Leone. If you were to catch a bus from Sierra Leone's capital, Freetown, to the southern city of Bo, it's likely you'll be on a green luxury bus, which is the most comfortable way of intercity travel in the country. However, these buses were informally known as a Gaddafi bus, um, much like we unfortunately still call those bikes in London Boris bikes. We need to change that name. Like I literally, I've never called them Boris bikes in my life. I always call them Santander bikes. I, I don't know if that's just because I'm, I don't know. I don't yeah it has santander in i it. need to stop calling it that i need to normalize not to refer to them as boris bikes because that should not be his legacy <laughs> <laughs> however the gift you know it doesn't and it can't excuse the fact that Gaddafi funded rebels in sierra leone to carry out their work very very gruesome horrific you had um these rebels forcibly recruiting children and chopping off limbs of their victims and many of them were innocent civilians and there were awful and horrific crimes against humanity taking place with these child soldiers ordered to kill parents and cannibalism taking place is this a legacy of someone who says that he's the king of kings of africa like it doesn't really make sense and we also can't discount the comments that he made to italy's prime minister at the time silvio Berlusconi, in 2010 Gaddafi forged close ties with Italy in a friendship treaty in an attempt to draw the line under Italy and Libya. Um, so Italy was actually its Libya's former colonial master because, you know, it wouldn't be an episode of It's a Content without a reference to colonialism, right? Yeah, and listen to this Italy, like, being out here a little bit. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. They, tr- they, tried, a- they tried a madness. And uh, in response to the growing migration crisis happening in uh, the Mediterranean, um, said Europe might no longer be European and even black, as there are millions who want to come in. This was a, at a ceremony in Rome. He's standing next to the Italian PM and, you know, he's saying this with his chest, basically. He goes on to say, We don't know what will happen, what will be the reaction of the white and Christian Europeans faced with this influx of starving and ignorant Africans. We don't know if Europe will remain an advanced and united continent, or if it will be destroyed, as what happened with the barbarian invasions. So that kind of sums up his feelings around Africans, because like, if you if you saw yourself as an African, like that that you know the whole sub-Saharan divide piece, because yeah. if you saw yourself as an African, you wouldn't be describing Africans like this. It's no, definitely not. It definitely not. It it doesn't make any sense because you're like, as an Arab, did he then see himself as above Africans, like? Is there a superiority complex? I don't, I don't know, but it's just like the question that we pose in because um, it's something that we see that's quite evident that's running through um, the thread of Gaddafi's story. North Africans' Africanness is often debated, and I'm bringing in a football reference because that is mm-hmm. what I do. So <laughs> Try to get it in early, <laughs> episode one. So Mo Salah um, won the African Footballer of the Year in 2017, and some Africans didn't think he was African enough to win the award. Another example was in July 2015, when The Guardian reported that Nigerian Chigozi Obioma was the sole African writer on the long list for the year's prestigious Man Booker Prize for Literature, overlooking the presence of Moroccan-born writer Leila Lelami among the 13 shortlistees. But what strikes is quite interesting is that the African Union itself was birthed through Pan-Africanism, which sought to strengthen African integration in the face of 
colonial so that's that's great that's a green light from me but the main leaders who formed the organization of the african unity the precursor to the au and the african union includes kwame nkrumah of ghana seko Toure of guinea leopold senghor of senegal and gamal abdul nasser of egypt and ahmed ben bella of so these North African leaders did play a role in the formation of the AU and subsequent Pan-Africanism. So it's like, oh, so you're African when you want to be, you know? Yeah, do you know what I mean? Especially, yeah, having Nasar there when all of his thoughts and ideas weren't based. Do you know what I mean? Like, okay. <laughs> I was so confused when I saw you that. Just, I was like, but you just, okay. But I guess it's that sort of thing where you like, you know, when you're friends with someone because you hate someone and you're like, oh, do you hate that person as well? Yeah, 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 me too. Like superficial friendship where you're like strategic yeah. allied friendship. Is this actually a genuine allyship? Another football analogy that I'm going to just throw in because I'm on a roll is that these North African teams play in African Cup of Nations. So they are still geographically African countries. Like the AFCON doesn't say, oh, no, sorry, you're uh, you're actually above the desert. So you're not in the competition. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, Northern African countries still have a common enemy in the West after all. Northern African countries were still colonized by the West. So there is they still do have that sort of shared history. But I guess the colorism element then comes in. So many similarities and also the blatant fact that they're in the same continent yeah like literally (laughs) we're going to close this out by taking you now to february 2011 by this point gaddafi was described as oddly disconnected it was the arab spring and gaddafi's fears at this point were the libyan people three of his sons had been killed and his family had fled elsewhere whilst gaddafi's family members fled taking cash gems and minerals gaddafi didn't leave According to the documentary Gaddafi the Mad Dog, South African mercenaries claim they were hired to lure Gaddafi out of his hiding place. There is no shortage of blurry mobile phone footage. I'm sure you probably remember seeing the image of Gaddafi's bloodied body being dragged quite literally, but everyone still struggles to figure out what actually happened in those final moments. Obviously, our friends at NATO were involved in an airstrike on Gaddafi's convoy and Libyan rebel forces found him hiding in a tunnel as he tried to make a break for it. Either way, Gaddafi was killed and his body was dragged through the streets by jubilant Libyans. That's crazy that like, I mean, obviously NATO was involved and we know that the West were involved, but the fact that the Libyans were jubilant about his demise kind of sums up the way that they felt about the way that he treated them. Um, and their country. Yeah, definitely. Just looking at Libya today, um, they have like major issues with black African slavery. And um, actually it is a major place. There's a modern slave trade trapping African migrants. Libya is on the route to Europe, so after you've travelled through the Sahara and grueling conditions, they then go on a dangerous journey across the Mediterranean on a smuggler's boat. And these people are exploited for labour and ransom. And there was a story in Time magazine, which we'll put in the episode show notes, which a man from Nigeria tells his story on how he was branded as punishment and as a form of identification by his captors. Branded is something that was common in transatlantic slavery. This just goes to show the extent to how these people are treated. And this is modern day. And tens of thousands of black Africans are finding themselves treated as chattel and trapped in a terrifying cycle of extortion, imprisonment, forced labour and prostitution as they are sold from one trafficker to another. In the words of Abu Bakr Samahoro, a union representative who came to Italy from Ivory Coast, he says, We no longer need slavers going into Africa to capture their quarry. Now Africans are sending themselves to Europe and becoming slaves in the process. He also said, humans are being sold because the embassies of Europe won't give visas to Africans. So yeah, it kind of just sums up 
you know, like, just states the state of everything, the fact that out of desperation, these people are now, you know, becoming slaves in the process. Mm-hmm. And even becoming slaves in their own continent. Do you see what I mean? Like, that's just... Yeah. Um, yeah, the fact that the Libyan captors are just so blasé about it, but again, it goes back to the whole, are these Arabs seeing themselves as above the Africans, you know? Well, the black Africans. Yeah. It's an interesting... Yeah, it goes back to that whole thing that we've been talking about, I think, just around identity and how you see yourself and whether that influences whether you have empathy towards another. Mm. And I think, like, regardless, but it's just, yeah, it re-emphasises that point again around that but yeah it's been an interesting episode yes it has it's um it's an interesting one because it's like they're, they're two major extremes and you know we've just kind of gone through the extremes and we'll just leave you to make up your minds about what you think but yeah it's uh it's good to be back on back on the pod yeah definitely back on it Thank you so much for listening, guys. guys. We are officially back. Yep. Episode one, we will see you uh, at our next episode where we'll be discussing Western Sahara. So, yeah, look forward to, yeah, having you guys listen to us again. And, yeah, welcome back. Thanks, guys. Bye. Thanks. Bye.